Welcome, everyone. You are listening to A Brief History of Power. I'm Colonel Willie Grills here with Dr. Adam Kuntz. Today, we're going to talk about evangelization. Adam, how are you? I'm doing great. How are you doing? I'm doing good. It's nice yeah. to be back. Been a little been a little busy over on this side, but glad yeah, to be have. here, and, and the conversational tone will continue. So <laughs> excellent. How, how was the how was the mild weather out in Colorado? Well, you know, it's actually kind of gray and cool. So we're we're LARPing as a Great Lakes state today. Um, <laughs> which, you know, does something to my spirits. So I'm hoping that that you can cheer me up. But it, it snowed last night and it's great today. So I'm well, just you know, yeah. you know, Arkansas yesterday started out with frost, but then it was spring by uh, midday, so it was wonderful. Do they know the word frost in Arkansas? Yeah, they they don't really know what to do with it, and they're okay. surprised when it comes because the growing season just seems to never really stop. Solid. Yeah, guys are guys are harvesting stuff into November, and then the frost hits, and they're secretly relieved not to have to eat okra anymore. But I, w- I was in uh, California earlier this year, and it was minimally, somewhat, a little bit frosty on the northeast side of certain properties and they just didn't know the word for frost so they were describing how it was icy it's like you know that's not that's not ice but you know i get it right right? and i think the average snowfall here is something like two inches a year and that's only skewed by like the every 10 years you'll get some freak snowstorm that's a foot so it's probably more like three quarters of an inch and it's gone by 10 a.m. Yeah. And so, you know, it has its perks. People from snowy places, and this includes Colorado, tend to act morally superior about snow. But, you know, it's like, I mean, do you actually get credit for just dealing with something you've always had to deal with? I mean, well, that's the other question. They're like, well, they don't know how to drive in snow. It's like, well, actually, we just don't have snow removal equipment. It is much easier to navigate your snowy streets when you have plows and things. Yeah, this is very true. But everybody here has four wheel drives. I think it's a state law. I mean, I even I do now. That's from mud, right? It's mostly for show. There you go. You know, I mean, that's what mine's for. Outstanding. And my well, Tony, you're, Sopran- you're, I'm in my Tony involved, Soprano mobile. Right. Yeah. I was going to say, yours involves a very elaborate callback to um, the early golden age of television. So, yeah, that's, like every that's like everything deal. I do. Yeah. Right. Exactly. Second, second golden age, please. Oh, okay. You know? Sorry. <laughs> well, today's discussion comes from a, a listener question, and it's and it's very good, and it wants to know about practical ways to do evangelism. You know, simply things like what does the day to day look like? How do you interact with new people? How do you right. begin conversations? And we're going to get into all of that. But the first thing we're going to talk about is kind of the history of evangelism in America, what that looks like. And maybe we'll get up into, um, you know, how the Missouri Synod latched onto some of these programs and things like that. Um, this is now a Guido Merkins podcast. And so always has be, been just making oh, it explicit today. <laughs> exactly. So, yeah. And so we, uh, you know, we, we think we're gonna have fun with this one. It's one, you know, if you're in any pastors meeting that comes up, you know, how do we how do we meet new people? How do you do that? And there's that tension between simply debasing yourself to try to get numbers up and relying so much on predestination and election that you actually think that if you just say the black and do the red, it's going to fill up the pews. Certainly, there is a middle ground between there. 
And when Jesus has commanded us to go out and to bring people in, um, we, we have to, we have to deal with that. And I think the Lutheran church probably used to do a better job at this. I don't think they were as squeamish about these sorts of things as we're going to find a little bit later on in the episode. Uh, this is, we plan on two parts for this, so we'll see, we'll see how long it goes. Yeah, we'll see how we go. But let's uh, kind of begin then. If we're going to focus on America, I think we have to go into the colonial period first and see what was what was going on there. So yeah, as we do on know, this show, I mean, right? So so buckle up for a lot of ethnic church discussions. So Adam, where do we begin? We want to start with just acknowledging that evangelism is not everything that a church does. It's not even sometimes the main thing that a church is doing uh, on every, any given day or in any given season of its life, but it is something that churches really cannot go without doing. And it is explicitly the communication of the gospel of Jesus Christ to people. Mm-hmm. So not just information about your church, not just information about your doctrine relative to other Christian confessions or something like that. It is the communication of the gospel of Jesus Christ to people who do not believe it. Okay. And that's going to be key because a lot of the history vis-a-vis most of the American population for most of our, our time as a settled area, not just as a, as a nation. So predating independence is that people know the gospel or have heard the gospel at some point but are not gathered into churches. And the reason I'm distinguishing those two things is just because although evangelism leads to church membership, there is often a gap for all kinds of people for all kinds of reasons between believing the gospel and actually being active members of Christian congregation. Yeah. And and then that comes up or that brings us to one of the the big issues in modern evangelism and modern church attendance, you know, modern Christian life is, is there a difference between believing the gospel and attending church? And we've made those two very separate things so that we believe that there is a whole mass of Christians out there with no interest in the church, no interest in a Christian life. And so as much as we want, would want to criticize revivalists, we, we fall into that mindset sometimes. Like We would rightly recognize that there's a problem between making a decision at a big event and having no connection to the church. Sometimes we we treat things that way, yeah. except we, we slap baptism on it. Well, they've been baptized. And so then the funeral, you know, they're baptized, never, never darken the church door again, but receive a Christian funeral by basis of that. And we preach as if nothing more was needed. And that's not to denigrate baptism. That's to denigrate a, a false understanding of baptism. Yeah, right. I mean, baptism is is part of, is incorporation into a body. And there is a life that that body has that the members of that body lead. Yeah. And there's there's nothing terribly complex about it. It's just that very often in the history, and we, we can bring up a colonial example of this, the best one is going to be the one to which... Most of your ancestors and and some of mine were supposed to have belonged, the Church of England, is that they have a they have a giant gap in practice between peoples having been evangelized or baptized, even baptized as a matter of cultural practice and and mm-hmm. just wrote, 
versus active church membership. And into that gap is where a lot of American denominationalism is going to grow mm-hmm. because just like today, it's very possible to meet somebody who has some kind of some kind of Christian profession or inclination, or they read the Bible, or they pray privately, or they believe that they should maybe go to church on Christmas Eve or something like that. And you can take the attitude that they are apostate, and it's possible that they are. It's just a lot likelier, not only today, but also throughout most of American history, that their acquaintance with Christianity was always passing. They they have they have very little that they've ever rejected because they have very little that they were ever told or taken to. Yeah, and this explains why Methodism grows faster than any other group in American history. I don't think we've ever I mean maybe the Southern Baptists, but Methodists in in the early 19th century in particular go from being a, a small minority to a dominating force. Yeah. And Methodism develops in reaction to a spiritual malaise within the Church of England. And so, and if you read the sermons, it has to do exactly with what we're talking about here. You know, trying to awaken baptized people. And I think that that's something we miss a lot in early American evangelism. They're not reaching predominantly non-Christians. They're trying to wake up people who are Christians in one form or another. Right. Whether whether in passing or not. Yeah. And especially when you look at colonial American history, it's probably most profitable to look at the more obscure, less well-known colonies like the mid-Atlantic colonies or the southern colonies for religious purposes for this reason, that they are the best examples of places where the church doesn't do its job and or doesn't do it very thoroughly. Yeah, Georgia, South Carolina, perfect right. examples of this. Exactly. Because you have if you start to think about this on an ethnic level, right? What what is essentially everybody with an English last name supposed to be some version of the Church of England? That's the that's the vision that is even still in Great Britain by statute, the requirement that the Church of England have a parish to cover essentially everywhere in the country. That's its that's its mandate, right? It's it's like universal, universal religious coverage provided by the Church of England. That's what everyone's supposed to be. Outside of New England and then certain, you know, groups within other parts of the colonies. So this is what Henry Muhlenberg does for the German Lutherans in largely Pennsylvania, but also Maryland and Virginia. This is what the Huguenots do in South Carolina. Apart from that, the vast majority of the people populating the American colonies should have been taken care of by priests of the Church of England for all kinds of reasons, largely having to do with very, 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 very low provision of clergy relative to population. They're not. Right. Uh, You get all kinds of interesting things that we wouldn't expect from Lutherans in those days. You know, notably, how does a Lutheran pastor get a, get assigned to New Amsterdam? They've got to work through the Church of England. You know, the the lines get blurred uh, in the colonial period more than we realize. 
And so, yeah, we're predominantly looking at established churches, in particular one established church, the Church of England, and and how and how people are served there. You're going to get what you get all the way up, really up until the 20th century, where you have ethnic churches, and they are oftentimes supplied by importing pastors due to linguistic differences or whatever. Yeah, right. So Muhlenberg is going to reach out to Germans, so on and so forth. We see this again in the 19th century with the second wave of German immigration. And that brings us kind of the LCMS where the men's work was not easy. It was different, though. We we don't have the privilege of going into a German settlement and going, well, I'm your pastor now, and church is going to be 9 o'clock this Sunday, yeah. see you there. But right. it did work that way. Um, it did work that way. What we forget, though, is all the stuff that these guys had to do in the meantime. They're baptizing people in farmhouses. They're confirming people or going through catechesis you know, in the fields and in the farmhouses. It was never really quite as simple as saying, oh, I'm a German pastor, right. you're German, you're going yeah. to German church. There was yeah, a build, lot of work going on. Build me a beautiful church such as you built in Hanover, you know? Yeah. Yeah, it wasn't that easy. And I, I think it might be helpful to think about evangelism as always having, whether you're looking at any, whatever scale you're looking on, whether you're saying, I would like to evangelize the town I live in, I would like to evangelize the state I live in, whatever, as both extensive, all the people taken who are there at the same time, how do I, how would I reach all of them? But it's always an intensive process too. That is each generation, even generations born to people already active members in a church has to be evangelized. Right. And what, what falls apart most often today is that intensive evangelization. That is that the gospel is not communicated in its clarity and in its depth, what the formula of Concord would call the gospel in all its articles, is not communicated to rising generations. That has an effect as the intensity of the communication of the gospel goes away over generations, that has an effect of lessening attachment. So that if you, for example, don't evangelize, let's say it's 1780 and you're, you know, you have not evangelized now roughly two generations in the Shenandoah Valley of Virginia, okay? Because it's somewhat obscure and somewhat hard to get to and blah, 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 blah. That's not happening. If they don't, if they're not evangelized by the third generation, it's not just that you're, you're now working with a generation and a half to two that haven't even been baptized. You're working with people who have now never heard the gospel. And that is going to have long-term effects on both church and state that are hard to understand until you look around at contemporary America. Because when we're talking about today, which is what the, the question was originally about, I find that it resembles colonial America in the relatively shallow level, okay, maybe extensive in some places. But well, you, yeah, in a, yeah, the, the, the shallowness of evangelization for the general American population today seems to me to be aligned really only with earliest America, where we can barely get a preacher to come to America at all, let alone go into the backwoods. Another way in which we're not dissimilar to, the, to that time is that 
you know, boots on the ground level. All right, you're a Missouri Synod pastor. You show up, your congregation's 50, 75 people on a Sunday. Yeah. But your membership rolls is 250, 300, 400 people. Right. And this is an example of what the evangelists in early America were dealing with. You have people who are nominally Christian, who are who who have not been seen in decades in certain cases. Right. And so your your population that you're reaching is very similar to what a Muhlenberg would try to be reaching out to, or a, you know, whoever you want to put in that, whoever you want to put there. A, a lot of the work of evangelization is reaching out to those people, figuring out where they are. Yeah. And, you know, and it's not just a, a paperwork thing, you know, so you don't have to pay as, as much in uh, district dues or Senate dues, but it's uh you know, that that's an evangelistic task there. Where are these people? And, right. and I think that that's something we need to work diligently on is to go out and to to try to find those people. Because evangelization is not simply a one-time thing. Let's get them to believe the gospel. I think evangelization is is a much longer process than that. And a lot of a lot of that work is calling back those who have who have gone astray. And and you find this in individual circumstances. You know, you, you look at those church roles and you'll find people who were very dedicated members and for whatever reason, 10 years ago they quit coming. You'll find the hey, they were baptized here and never darkened the doors again, and everything in between. It, it's not dissimilar from someone you'll meet out in the street who is completely foreign to your congregation. Yeah, because you have this big difference today from colonial times is that whereas in colonial times, the variety of, let's say, religious competition to Christianity is very low. You, the population that obviously has to be ev- evangelized altogether and where competition with Christianity is is extremely high is the Indian population. Mm-hmm. But outside of certain efforts, particularly in New England and then in other parts of the United States by the Moravians, you don't have significant Indian evangelization, at least in colonial times. You have instead almost incessant religion warfare and and therefore religious conflict is is natural to that and evangelization always has difficulty in times of war but the thing that we now deal with if somebody is not going to church they're not an active member of a christian congregation yours or somebody else's the thing that i've never really liked about you know sending people like that letters when you're on your on your rolls is that the letter sort of assumes that they understand the stakes of what's going on and you're asking them to simply, you know, make a decision about you know what stakes they want to take. They want to, you know, they've joined another Christian congregation, they have joined another Lutheran congregation, whatever the deal is. You send them a letter. They have they have no grasp of that. They they might have a vague concept of karma. They might have a really vague idea that everything happens for a reason. I mean, the the base level religiosity of a modern American is not Christian in any kind of ambient, atmospheric way. And it is usually very strange. Just Just look at their funerary practices, right? What people, what they do when people die is going to tell you, how far off the reservation they have wandered 
And, uh, you know, so that's something where today it's like the stakes are even higher because it's not like this person is going to drift away from church and then just, you know, that's a problem, but he's still going to read his Bible and pray. That's not going to (laughs) happen. Right. (laughs) And, but a lot of times it's just to cope, you know, well, we reached out to him, we we sent the letter and, and we're good. We, we made a good faith effort. At the very least, you've got to make the phone call if you've got a working number. I mean, you you know, you have to at least try. And I, I mean, obviously, there comes a point where formal letters go out. We we understand that, but that's not that alone is not a substitute for what we're talking about here. And yeah, I mean, really, evangelism is taking seriously the fact that that's that's another eternal soul on the other end of that line. Yeah, not a bureaucratic problem that you just have to, you know, get things cleaned up. Yeah. And and you can also fall into the other trap of them just saying, no, I want to stay on the rolls and you just keep it going the way it went. Right. So they're, they're good, you know, by virtue of, of, of membership. You know, I'm not a Campbellite. I do believe that membership is important and that paper membership does matter. But we we rely probably quite a bit too much on official statistics for our ability to sleep at night in some circumstances. And so that's, that's not good. I think that, you know, maybe, you know, shifting away from history a little bit earlier, cause we'll kind of, we'll thread it in there cause we'll have to talk about evangelism programs and things like that. But, you know, a lot of this is, you know, we're, we're not trained very well to have these conversations and it's something that you can't really workshop in a classroom environment either. I think this is something that only comes through actually doing it and and through going through that crucible. Um, if you're going to have a conversation about these things, whether it's with a total pagan, delinquent member, lukewarm member, hurting member, whatever, you have to be prepared for some difficult conversations. And you have to be willing to understand that these people often speak an entirely different vocabulary than you do. And this is one thing that I, I do think we're guilty of far too often is speaking in our theological shorthand in a way that's just com- completely confusing. And we use too much Lutheran-specific lingo without any definitions or anything like that. And so people just become lost. Uh, a lot of times, so I no longer really do big new member classes anymore because everybody's coming from such a different background. Yeah. Right. So bringing a Wells person into the congregation, which we've had a number of recently, is different from bringing a Baptist in, for example. But almost as a rule today, just because of the disparity in catechesis among congregations, I start every new family or individual that comes in kind of as a blank slate and really start from zero and build up. Because that's that's the state of American Christianity today. And and when once you get to know them, you find out where they're at. You can start to tailor that, and you really have to. But start everyone at zero, and 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 work up from there. Because you're not so much recatechizing in a lot of cases. You are first undoing a lot of thinking. And of course, you would have to do that with a pagan. But a lot of us forget that you'd have to do that even with a Lutheran, whatever that means, in certain contexts. Yeah. And. When you're thinking about it, it, what what task you're actually, you know, what what exactly are you doing? It is something a little bit. If there is a, if there is an analog 
it is something more like sales mm-hmm. than than engineering. Meaning, that's the sound of a thousand people turning the podcast off. Yeah, right. right. <laughs> you know, I mean, all of these things have analogs. Preaching has an analog in public speaking, especially persuasive public speaking. So that's all I mean. And and what that indicates is that you have to be prepared to have something that is comprehensible to that person ready. And then also, and I think this is where because of the accent on agreeableness and niceness inside churches, both pastors and congregations are unready to be rejected, which is always a part of this task, is that you will be rejected by a certain percentage of people, and that's okay. So if they're coming into a new members class, that's one thing, and they can reject whatever they want at that point, and you know, that's why you don't bring people in too fast, right? Um, we don't lay on hands too quickly. We also don't right. want to extend the right hand of fellowship too quickly. But even when it's the initial proclamation of the gospel, and I think maybe we can begin to talk about venues for that and and the size of that, because when a lot of people think about evangelism, they're thinking about mass evangelism. Mm-hmm. Whatever the scope of what you're doing is, you have to be prepared for people to reject it or to have objections. That's where apologetics really slots in as simply a help to evangelism. It's not there as just, you know, an interest you have because you're kind of brainy. It's it's something that is meant to be helpful to the proclamation of the gospel. And whatever you're doing, you have to be ready for people, whether for reasons that appear to be apologetic, like they reject the notion of a resurrection from the dead, but also for usually far more often for very specific personal reasons. You know, my, my dad didn't die as a Christian. Is he going to hell? These kinds of things. You have to be ready to be rejected and to be challenged. If that's not really part of your toolkit as a pastor or as a Christian, then this is going to be hard or daunting. And I think it's a reason that a lot of people just don't engage in it mm-hmm. because, you know, for every 50 calls you make, you know, a certain percentage of that is going to involve being rejected by people. Yeah. And so it becomes easier just to turn insular and say, well, we're just not going to bother with it and God will take care of yeah, it. Yeah, right. But God also will judge us for being derelict in our duty. And and we're not even getting into, for the purposes of this discussion, really the lay obligation, if there even is one, how this factors into the laity. You know, right now we're really talking about what pastors are supposed to do yeah. and called to do. Yeah, because I think that the lay, lay evangelization, if you go back to that just distinction between extensive and intensive, lay evangelization happens far more often on the on the intensive end of things right? with one's own family, with one's own neighbors. And the way that that plays out most often in in my congregation, probably in yours too, is that because of the variety of contacts that those people have with human beings I don't know, they're going to be key in bringing them to the church. They're going to be key in having an initial conversation. Evangelization doesn't have to be achieved by a single charismatic winning individual mm-hmm. in every case. And lay involvement, whatever your degree of fluency or capacity is going to be, is almost often, almost always going to going to end up in intensive proclamation of the gospel rather than extensive. Where whereas you know 
by virtue vocationally. I think if a clergyman is not trying to proclaim the gospel widely, you you have to wonder like what are you doing, right? What does do the work of evangelist mean if not that you are proclaiming the gospel widely? Right. And you know, we we're in a state in modern Lutheranism where we're even afraid to use imperatives, even biblical language. We're we're guys on social media, frocked men will will say <laughs> will will push back against something like believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you right. will and you will be saved. You know, repent and be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins, you know, just to take directly from St. Peter. People will push back against that actual language because it sounds too close to Arminianism forum or too close to, you know, something not as theologically ac- accurate or precise as what they want. And because of our little intramural debates, we find ourselves handicapped. And and I, I believe this strongly. I mean, because because I see it all the time. Yeah, and I mean, to the point of guys saying evangelism is not just telling people about Jesus. Well, of course it is. Let's not be absurd. And and what they're trying to say is it's not knocking on doors or it's this or that and or it's not just a one time decision. And yeah, they're right, but they miss the fact that sometimes it is knocking on doors and sometimes it is. It begins with, indeed has to begin with, that initial coming to faith. So imagine in your, you know, whatever, if you're not a pastor, or even if you are a pastor, maybe you've never thought about evangelization before. Imagine that you have the the basic way that you get new material in, in what you do. So you work with metals. Imagine that the mining sector is, has just completely collapsed. You, you work with computers. Imagine you can't get chips for anything. I mean, some of this isn't hard to imagine because it's happened in the recent past. And somebody comes along, you work with metal. Somebody comes along and says, you know what? Metal working is about more than working with the products of mining. I mean, you know, like it's 2023, you know, metal working is about CNC machines and metal working is about this and metal working is about that. And you, you don't have you don't have a clear idea as to, you know, you're like, something is off here. Something is really off, but I don't exactly know how to say it is that if a church is so upset about scriptural language and scriptural imperatives, of course, nothing is going to be done because the new Testament relies on the idea that both the clergy vocationally and all Christians by virtue of their baptism have some role in the, proclamation of the excellencies of Christ, which is, which is what evangelism is. So if that's broken, then of course we have this problem on a mass scale. And so like, that's why I, modern American Christianity seems to me to be in much the same place that the church of England was in the 18th century. It's, it's a drift. It's unsure of itself. It's unsure of its doctrine. And that's always going to cripple the proclamation of the gospel. The, I mean, the, the exceptions to that and the thing that really changes from, from roughly the late 18th century through, I would say, the high tide of American Christianity in the 50s and 60s is that we somewhat unusually, on a, on a, on a nationwide scale at least, we somewhat unusually do not become an overwhelmingly liberal Christian country. Mm-hmm. We, we remain relatively 
conservative, what will be called in the early 20th century fundamentalist on basic Christian doctrine. And that will produce on a nationwide scale, even as the frontier advances, evangelism efforts inside our country, as well as then exported to the rest of the world, out of all proportion to our country's to our country's size and also and also contra the trend of most Western countries where both belief in Christianity and church membership will generally have gone down since the 18th century, more or less steadily. There are a few things that we forget in the task of the evangelist, or I should say a few attributes that the evangelist must have. One, he must know Christ. Okay, and we assume that pastors do. Two, he has to love Christ. And then three, he has to actually love his neighbor. And this is not a judgment upon the clergy. It's just simply saying these three things are necessary. How can we tell the world about someone that we don't know? And why would we tell the world about him if we don't care about them? Putting aside questions about election, I would remind you that, confessionally speaking, that is meant for the comfort of of the bruised reed and things like that. It's meant for the comfort of, of Christians. It's not meant to be an impediment to evangelization. But there is a truth. Okay, if false teaching will lead people to hell, and we know it will from the Scriptures, then what does that say about the neglect to tell people about Christ? And I'm not talking about snap every time I snap my fingers, the old meme, you know, every time I snap my fingers, somebody's going down. We're not talking about that. But if you truly believe that Christ is the only way to heaven, and if you truly believe that you're called to bring that gospel to those around you, because the other option is not them not having that gospel and not believing that gospel is damnation, then what would stop us from doing it? And I don't think it's an acceptable answer to say, well, God will take care of it. Of course, God will take care of it. And you'll say, well, God works through means. 100% God works through means. And those means are uh, applied by the Holy Spirit through his called servants, which is you. And so we probably should be praying that God makes us willing to do this and strengthens us for this task. We should be praying to grow closer to Christ because Christ is near and Christ is real. Sometimes even the preacher needs to be reminded that everything he is preaching and everything he is reading in the scriptures is true. And just to remind ourselves of that, it's not an academic exercise. It's not even necessarily a theological exercise, but it's an exercise with eternal ramifications. And so we must we must ask for some measure of zeal, and we shouldn't be afraid to. People are being led astray every day, and uh, we want to we want to rescue them from that. Understanding that ultimately, the convert the converting task is the work of God, and the work of God alone. But it comes through the proclamation of the gospel, uh, through the preaching of the word, and and it hap- and and that preaching happens in some very interesting contexts when you're talking about evangelism. It doesn't just happen, you know, from the pulpit. It can, but it's not exclusive to the pulpit. And so we have to we have to pray for that strength and we have to pray for that desire to do it. And what do you what what yeah. do you think about scale here, Willie? Like historically speaking, is evangelism mostly going to be house to house or privately? And and how how does the growth of mass evangelism, which is probably what a lot of people think when they think of the word evangelist, they might think of a 
you know, Billy Graham is in Yankee Stadium or yeah. So for even before that, maybe they know about Dwight Moody. For every Billy Graham or Moody, or for every Lorenzo Dow or George Whitfield, there's always been about a hundred more anonymous circuit riders, a hundred more anonymous evangelists. And while history focuses on the great revivals, they are not solely responsible for the millions of conversions throughout American history. I think if we're being honest, even though this is not that documented, you would have to say that the bulk of the work happened in smaller settings. Even if you take revivals, the bulk of that happens in a much smaller scale than what Whitfield would do or Billy Graham. Right. Billy Graham has bigger crusades, but they're smaller in number. But at any given church at the same time, they're having multiple things in their communities, reaching um, smaller individual groups. But over time, they're going to be contacting more people, I would argue. Yeah. Yeah. And so that that's going to have to do with something that then you can see, you can begin to see that Lutherans who hold themselves apart from other denominations for a variety of reasons, some of them cultural, some of them theological, some of them enduring, are not as dissimilar from other denominations and, and confessions historically in the sense that the basic work of finding people and proclaiming the truths of Christ to them is really extremely common to Christian denominations of all kinds throughout history at a relatively small scale at a at a house to house scale or a couple of households at a time scale rather than thinking okay well we don't have a billy graham or we sort of had a billy graham once in walter a meyer right, and i either CIA like took care of that right <laughs> heart attack gun was actually you know was actually tested on walter a meyer a uh, little known fact successfully unfortunately successfully <laughs> but that what you know that that we're just different and we're different for precise theological reasons i it, it's kind of like when i when i teach new people especially people coming from outside the lutheran church also inside about private confession and absolution i say i think every pastor of every denomination does something like private confession and absolution or people try to do it with him whether he has the words or not to say i forgive you all your sins Okay, that the task of people feeling guilty and wanting to be relieved of their guilt by the proclamation of the gospel is common to the Christian ministry. Likewise, evangelism is common to the Christian ministry. It's common to the Christian church of any kind, whether you have an altar call in the process of that yeah. or whether you are calling them to be baptized and to be active members and to learn the small catechism or something. Yes, obviously that varies. But the work does not vary. The task doesn't vary. And therefore, I think we tend to, we set it aside as and we say, well, we don't do that because, because we don't have revivals or we don't do that because we don't have mm. giant smoke machines on Christmas Eve. Sure. Okay. But you're focusing on techniques or tactics, whereas the task <laughs> is something that you have, whether you want it or not, or whether you think it's just for Baptists or not. No, that's an excellent way to put it. Outstanding. You know, go back to the confession and absolution thing. I mean, the, the proof of what you're saying is, I mean, go to Calvin's Geneva, Knox's Scotland, whatever. They have they have a version of that. When they did when the pastors did home visits, they had yeah. a confession of sins and a declaration of grace. 
Right. And it's right there in their in their prayer books or in their pastoral books. And so, yeah, the same thing with evangelization in the Luther in the Lutheran church, you have to come to the same to the same point, which is believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. So how do you get there? You're you're absolutely right. And sometimes we became in reaction to the excesses of American evangelicalism, sometimes we became frozen in reaction to that. Now, we'll talk about this probably in the next episode, where in the 20th century and on into this century, perhaps we, in certain areas, went a little bit whole hog <laughs> into some of some of the revivalist stuff that we shouldn't have. But was there ever anything good that we gleaned from that? If, if we were reading Evangelism Explosion, was everything terrible and reprobate in doing that? I think these are questions worth having. And, or, or excuse me, worth discussing. Yeah. And so, yeah, you, you still have to come up with or come to the agreement that, yeah, we people need to believe the gospel. And we would agree you don't need a quote unquote revival to do that. But we can agree with Billy Graham that people need to hear the gospel. And, and, the, and you know, on that, that the gospel has to be proclaimed. Right. And, and I think something that is uh, native as a mental tick inside Lutherans, as it is inside Roman Catholics too, is that if you think that you are <laughs> either on a theoretical level or just on a functional level, and the functional level is where the Lutherans land, because theoretically no Lutheran has a right to say, we are the only church on earth. I mean, and, and we never have, okay, to be clear. But you probably have found in the wild somewhere is that someone claims to have been told that if you weren't a member of the Lutheran church, you were going to hell, right? And I've heard it enough. I actually, I actually believe somebody did hear that. I even believe that some pastor articulated it that way, sure. maybe somewhere once, okay? Catholics had historically, Vatican II, of course, changes this. You also notice that when a church no longer really believes that its doctrine is necessary for salvation, that the gospel is not necessary for salvation, even evangelization will plummet. And that has, in fact, been the case for the Roman Catholic Church since the 1960s. Prior to that, when they say, we're it, you have to be part of us, the way some Catholics will still do on Twitter, x.com, excuse me. When they say that, you will find that they do not credit the evangelistic efforts of anyone else. Lutherans aren't there theoretically, but functionally we very often are. That is, we really don't think about what anyone else is doing. And therefore it makes it very difficult for us to understand the landscape. So the landscape in a Billy Sunday crusade in the early 20th century, or a Billy Graham crusade in the middle of the 20th century, is that you have a lot of people with residual or cultural Protestant Christianity. That's the vast majority of Americans through all time. And they're going there and they are maybe, what they are really doing is they are recommitting to Christianity, <laughs> okay, in some way. That's, that's really what they're doing. And that's going to be, that's going to be perhaps symbolized by their third baptism or whatever. But that's what they're that's what they're actually doing they have in fact heard the gospel before again i'm going to suggest here that the the gap has usually been between evangelization which we do relatively little of and membership 
work on membership, or you could say discipleship in, in, in biblical terms, that those two things are interrelated, that the one who hears and believes the gospel should be a living member of the body of Jesus Christ. We do a lot on the membership end. Historically, we do relatively little on the evangelization end. At this point, very often, the reason that you are, and, and most of us, are in some measure re-instructing people who have been, quote, Lutherans their whole lives, is because even the membership part is falling apart. Mm -hmm. So that we're doing neither what brings people in, nor what retains them or retains their loyalty. In this way, I don't find Lutherans to be that different from Roman Catholics in the present day. We have a history of ignoring other people and what they're doing or dismissing it. Mm -hmm. Okay, so what a lot of the listeners will know about a Billy Graham or a D. James Kennedy, not to speak of a Billy Sunday or a Dwight Moody, is probably just going to be the names. We don't know sure. what they did. We don't, we don't know what they said. Yeah. The yeah. catechesis issue is the more troubling one for us because historically that's where we've been very, very good. Strong, right. And... And that seems to have, within the last generation or two, really become shallow in certain yeah. quarters. And our great strength, I would argue, would have been catechesis historically, at least as far as Lutherans in America. I, mm -hmm. I don't think that that's really up for debate. Yeah. And and somewhere, and I think this has to do with American evangelicalism a little bit in a couple of different ways. Even your very solid, strong confessional guys sometimes we're feeling the pressure to get the numbers up and to grow the church. And so it's really hard to just have this numerical explosion by taking very slow and measured catechesis. And so, so the number of classes began to shrink. Uh, the topics you covered began to, to go away. And so it's not uncommon to find someone on a membership role who, well, how'd you come into the church? Well, we sat down and talked to pastor for an hour and then we were there next Sunday. Right. And yep. and so that fade really started to happen. And I, I do think part of it was uh, due to pressure to, to bring people in. It could have been squeamishness over stuff. It could have been uh, a shyness on our distinctives. I don't know. And it's probably largely dependent upon context and situation. But, you know, there where we were always strong, we began we began to be very weak in certain places. This is not I'm not really speaking broadly here. I think broadly speaking, we're still very good at this. But the problem is, in order to, to make catechesis work, you must have catechumens. And so evangelism is related to how do we get people to the catechumenate, to the catech, to the Because cat I think that's part of it too. You know, you're not always evangelizing toward believe on Jesus right now. Right. You might be evangelizing to the point of come and learn and come and see and come and be taught. Right. Because the Holy Spirit works in that way too to open people to be ready to learn and then to eventually believe the gospel. Right. And, and, and that connection between evangelism and catechesis is one that when it's not maintained in a variety of directions and our habit over time was to neglect evangelism rather than catechesis. The habit of most American Christians has been to neglect catechesis, Yes, which is why we have such a strong comparative advantage in teaching and thoroughness. And the reason that everyone is going to a crusade recommitting for the third time because he wasn't taught a whole lot the first two. Right. But if we drop the catechesis, we have no advantage. Yeah. Yeah. We're almost of all men, we're most to be pitied because both no one knows about us, evangelism 
And if they did find out about us, we're teaching them very little catechesis. Yeah. And, you know, kind of underneath all this discussion, there's a little bit of a inferiority complex that American Lutherans sometimes have. They're borderline apologetic about who they are. Yeah. And I don't think it should be that way. And there's a little bit of jealousy over how can, say, some small reform denomination have so much more influence in American culture or American Christianity than the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod can, who is 10 times as large. And so we begin to get maybe a little jealous, at least a little bit confused as to how that can happen. Right. Now, thankfully, a lot of times that leads to us digging our heels in on our doctrine, but sometimes it leads to some outliers wanting to adopt certain reformed things in order to get some of that influence. Or anytime we have something approaching a celebrity hovering around Lutheranism, we want to latch onto them as if it's something to to hold up. Because there's a ton of famous Presbyterians. There aren't that many famous Lutherans, you know. You know, and so so all of a sudden, you know, you know, Ben Sass is uh is a Lutheran for life now. It's got yeah, yeah. once saved, always saved for Lutheranism yeah. means that you attended an LCMS church at some point. That's right. Once confirmed, always confirmed, maybe. Well, I think people <laughs> do actually believe that one. <laughs> right. And so and maybe it's just a case of look, we we have treasures to give people, and we have the pearl of great price. So, you know, don't worry about those other guys as much. Worry when they're sheep stealing, of course, but don't be surprised by the undue influence of some heterodox person out there. That shouldn't that shouldn't concern us all that much. To a point, I mean, yeah. it shouldn't concern us so much that we want to change who we are. It should concern us that much that we be better at what we are. It's and it's more also- intentional about what we do. It's also like you have to realize that the reason that the American South is dominated by Baptists and and adjacent low church, generally Arminian Protestants of various kinds, is because those guys put in work generally centuries ago to lay a foundation to have, you know, multiple gigantic Southern Baptist seminaries in the South, for example. So you can't, if you're thinking about evangelism, even in your local community, let alone on a regional or national scale, you have to realize that this is the work of generations. It's not that you're going to bounce around and hold your Lutheran version or your whatever version of a crusade. So whether you want to cover what you're doing with incense and surpluses and and not ever use a scriptural imperative such as believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, or you want different trappings, whatever they are. You have to realize that in a lot of these efforts, there is a relative shallowness in the same sense that in the place that you live, there might there might be a building that was a church 40 years ago, and it was a church for like 70 years. So 110 years ago, somebody did work. It fell apart. That work is now gone. If you want lasting work, you have to commit to a much longer time scale. And the bigger the scale of human beings you're dealing with, the bigger the scale of this is going to take a long time because the the American South is the way it is because of efforts beginning from people generally sharing those confessions. Well, and, and we years see, yeah, we see the the fallout of this too. I mean, it's nothing really to to aspire to. I mean, so I'm in the Baptist belt, it's crawling with them here, every version of Baptist that you want. And every few years, 
enough of them will get mad at each other or enough of them will believe that they need to go and start another church and it grows into 1200 people or whatever. But in five to 10 years, that building's vacant and another similar church has moved on. Right. There's really not a pattern anymore there of lasting, of lasting churches. Mm -hmm. You, you had that in the 19th century. We had many Baptist churches that were big all the way up until the early 2000s. And as the Baptist church actually went further and further away from their historic confession, they're suffering the same problem as the big box kind of money or not money oriented, but market oriented approach to evangelism did. And we're seeing the fruits of that, but it can be very discouraging, you know, for a pastor um, who's really worried because he's losing members to some Baptist mega church down the street or some non-denom or whatever. But those are not things that are lasting in, in many cases, almost as a rule. Almost as a rule, these things don't last. And you have to consider that the people who are going to this are are perhaps sincere and they're being continually wounded by this kind of thing. But particularly to an area like this, you have a lot of people that attend the Baptist church for the same reason they would be at the Episcopal church in New England or perhaps even the Lutheran church in Minnesota or whatever, because that's where the networking is done. And that's where the people are. And so there is a social element to it that we often forget about. Uh, The church, especially the Baptist church in the South, is still an institution. And so a lot of people are there simply because this is the church and this is where the community is at. Whether right or wrong, you can't discount how important that is. I I think that it, it is something to consider. And in a lot of, in a lot of, the history of various evangelistic movements, you're going to find that the evangelist or the evangelists are taking seriously the fact that human beings are social creatures. So they, therefore they are ethnic creatures. Therefore they are economic creatures. Therefore they behave in groups and the groups respond to certain things as a, as a mass phenomenon. You know, people say uh, to people they already know for other very human reasons they're related to them. They work with them. They live near them. That you should come hear what's going on at this church or or from this preacher or whatever. And that when you don't take that seriously, when you think you're you're just going to convert people on an individual scale, because that's not how human beings behave, you are going to be banging your head against the wall because you're trying to get them to care about things or to to know things in a relentlessly individual way. Mm-hmm. And even when they show up individually, that's not them. Like there is a pro there, there are basically two different profiles of people that I could almost guarantee you, if you met them in Denver, Colorado, they, they are, were, or will be members of my congregation, my congregation specifically, not the other LCMS congregations, Yeah, mine. I know who they are. <laughs> okay. Right. Because even when they come completely randomly from suburbs 15 minutes from each other and they've never met before they have other similarities to each other that are that are driving the fact that they're like oh yeah i like that church yeah that's good you know i should right. go to that one you know i think the uh the frustration of the evangelistic task is something that we can't discount either you know when everything is tied up in numbers and everything if we're always comparing ourselves to the church down the street that is a recipe for frustration yeah totally and it can weigh heavily on pastors, and I don't want anything said here to, to to make them think that, oh, okay, you're not getting enough people in, so you're not doing your job. That's not the case 
necessarily at all. But understanding that even if you don't bring another soul into the fold, that does not mean you're derelict in duty. You know, the even the apostles went to towns and were not welcome. They had to shake the dust off their feet. And so that's going to be part of it, too. There's going to be a lot of rejection. And while Acts records the tremendous successes, it also records a lot of the persecutions. And so we need to be, we just need to be ready for that as well, that your fidelity isn't measured in numbers either. Right. Yeah. I and, mean, and, 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 that, and that's where the pastor gets often attacked by, by his flock. Well, you're not doing your job. If you were doing your job, we would have, the churches would be full with all of these young people. Now we're not going to learn their names, but it would be full of them. And so, so true. <laughs> you know, we are so, not going to learn their names. <laughs> and so, you know, you know, pastors, you know, take take heart in that. It, it's simply a case of, you know, a call for boldness and a call for zeal, and 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 just to be to be kind of ready for this, to be ready for disappointment, but also to to expect the Lord to do what He said He would do, where His word is preached, and to expect that His word would not return void. Yeah, evangelism is really just thinking about the proclamation of the word of God from a pastor's perspective. The proclamation of the word of God relative to people who do not yet necessarily, or as far as we can tell, know it and believe it. Right. It's the same thing that you do with your congregation on Sunday. It's the same thing that you do in Bible class and in catechism class that's just applied and obviously simplified and boiled down for those who don't necessarily yet know or believe. So in the same sense that your, your worth as a pastor is measured by your faithfulness in your preaching and your faithfulness in your teaching, it's also measured by your faithfulness in the proclamation of the gospel, not by the numbers of people you're preaching to or the numbers of people you're bringing into the church or the numbers of people that have never heard the gospel before but heard it from you. It's not about numbers. It's about the fact that there are souls who need the gospel. That's, that's it. That's all. Right. Absolutely. And so we are at the end of this hour. In the next episode, we will get more in depth with the actual listener question, which has to do with just boots on the ground. What does the day-to-day task of an evangelist look like? Yeah. And so how to talk to people, do you set aside time, those sort of practical questions. So that that is the plan, Lord willing, for for next time. Yeah. So This has been a brief history of power. I'm Colonel Grills here with Dr. Kuntz. Thank you for joining us. You know where to find us. Are you looking for a Christ-centered healthcare provider? One that values life no matter the stage and knows that we are made in the image of God and thus have inherent regenerative abilities? Or are you a healthcare provider looking to escape the increasingly woke system that employs you? Direct e-care can help. We are a concierge telehealth company founded by a cradle Lutheran who takes his God-given vocation seriously. We offer our patients direct, unfettered access to our providers with unlimited, as-needed telehealth services for only $35 per month or $370 per year. We are currently able to provide care to patients in the state of Idaho only, but are actively seeking providers in other states that would like to partner with us to start their own direct e-care clinic. Whether you are a prospective patient or an interested provider, you can learn more at www.directe-care.com.